Romans chapter 11, we started this chapter last Lord's Day. I kind of meant to try to finish it today, but I just realized that was more than I could bite off and chew and digest all at once. Okay, Romans 11. Now, I'm not going to read right off, but I want to ask a question right off. What about Israel? Now, look, I wouldn't ask you guys that question if it didn't matter. And you know how I know it matters? Because God inspired one of His apostles to write three whole chapters on ethnic Israel. And if he did, especially to a Gentile church such as the church at Rome, obviously it's got something to do with your life and my life. So I ask that question, what about Israel? Many today, you guys know this, many today would say, well, God deals differently with Israel. I mean, I don't know how, is it, how it is in your thinking. I don't know if you even thought about Israel. Or if you even think much. I know when I was lost, I didn't think a whole lot about it. But I did think. I guess I kind of thought like Sophie. I thought my, you know, my diehard Catholic family members were probably saved. I had that misconstruction in my mind. But I also probably thought, well, Israel, yeah, they're God's people. I mean, maybe even more so than Catholics. Because being a Catholic, you thought that, you thought that was the only true church. So I thought, I thought, well, you know, first and foremost, certainly Israel was God's people, and after that, Catholics were. That was how they thought. And there are people today who basically have this mindset that Israel, they're God's people. And they've got this in with God that comes another way than how the rest of us. You know, the nations, the Gentiles, we all have to, Christ had to come and die for us. They kind of had another way in because they were God's people from the beginning, so they were kind of in already. Now listen. There's nothing wrong with mentioning names, and I'll tell you why. Paul, when there, was, when there was heresy in the church concerning the resurrection, you know what he did? He identified the two men that were preaching it by name. You guys remember who those were? Who was it? Hymenaeus and Philetus? Listen, Mr. Hagee up here on the north side has basically come along and, and agreed not to proselytize Jews. You know Why? He thinks they've got an in already. In fact, he's gone so far to write a book to say that Christ is not the Jews' Messiah. Now, maybe some of you think like that. And then on the other hand, you go to the other extreme, you got guys like Martin Luther. Oh boy, he's well-renowned as a reformer. But have you ever read or have you ever heard about what the, what the guy thought about Jews? I mean, I just... I, I looked at a little, little bit online this morning and he... I mean, these are direct quotes from him, obviously translated from the German into English, but he said, Jews are a miserable and accursed people. He believed there was little hope for them and that showing Jews mercy would only make them worse and worse. He said what we should actually do, rather than throw, show them mercy, is throw pig dung at them and drive them out like mad dogs. So, I mean, what are we to make of all this? Is Hagee right? Is Luther right? Of course, the question we need to ask is not so much what men think, it's what does our Scriptures say? What does the Bible teach about Israel? And you know what? Romans chapter 11 
has more to say. And obviously, Paul has been dealing with this in Romans 9 and 10. But Romans 11 is probably one of the clearest, in all of our Bible, one of the clearest treatments of what God is actually doing with Israel. How He views them, how they relate to Gentiles, how Gentiles relate to them. Now I can't cover, you guys will notice, as I, as I move through parts of Romans 11 today, you're going to notice that there is a very distinct section, basically the one that deals with the tree and the roots and the branches. That whole metaphor, that whole picture that, that is being created there. I am not going to deal with that today. Lord willing, the way I, my plan is going right now, after Bob comes two weeks from now, we're going to nail that. But for the most part, what I want to try to do today is kind of an overview picture, somewhat avoiding the, the branches and that whole figurative language there. But I want to give you guys kind of an overview. And then I want, to, I want us to look at why it is the way it is. And so, rather than just you know, reading a portion of Scripture right here at the beginning and then preaching on it, I'm going to do some, somewhat of a running commentary. Just on, I'm going to draw your attention to various verses here. Try to bring some explanation. I might be jumping around a little bit in Romans 9 and 10 as well as 11. But I want you to get an idea. First and foremost, that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is distinctly dealing with physical Israel. Now, that's important that you understand that. Because in verse 6 of Romans 9, we are made... We are made aware that there is a true Israel, a spiritual Israel, and there is a physical ethnic Israel. And imagine physical ethnic Israel. All those who are actually literally descended from Abraham in a group. And what Paul says in Romans 9 verse 6 is that not all of this Israel is true Israel. Just because you're of Israel or descended from Israel, Jacob, doesn't necessarily make you a true Israelite. And back in Romans 2, Paul dealt with this more fully. A Jew is not one just on the outside or externally. A true Jew is one internally. And circumcision is not just that which is done in the physical body. True circumcision is that which is done in the heart. And so actually, what this whole this whole distinction ought to make us aware of is that actually Gentiles have the ability to become a true Israelite. But you need to make that distinction in your mind. And Paul makes it in Romans 9.6. Now listen, even though he makes that distinction, we see clearly in Romans 9, verses 1, 2, and 3, that Paul is very distinctly speaking about national, physical, ethnic Israel. Because he says right there, in verse 3, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. For who? Very specifically, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's, that's pretty obvious. It's obvious Paul's making reference to the men and women who make up ethnic nation of Israel. Now, if we jump forward to Romans 10, you're going to see that he starts out that chapter identifying the exact same people. Now, he uses a pronoun to describe them there, they, but all you have to do is look back at the end of Romans chapter 9 to see Israel 
is identified by name. And he's not talking about the true spiritual Israel because the Israel he's speaking about at the end of 9 is the Israel that is stumbling over Christ. And we know that he's not speaking about Christian Israel or elect Israel because he's specifically praying in Romans 10, verse 1, for what? That they be saved. I mean, clearly he's dealing with Jews who are not saved. It's not even known if they're elect. It's not even known if they're children of promise. He's praying for a nation. Now, when we come over again to Romans 11, you get the same idea as we start out there. Verse 1, Paul is still concerned with the very same group of people, ethnic nation of Israel. Verse 1, I ask then, has God rejected His people? Now, some of you might be inclined to run immediately and say, now hold on a second. If it says His people, God's people, this can't be speaking about ethnic Israel anymore. This must be speaking about the saved. This must be speaking about Christians. Well, that's, that's not true. And you'll see it as verse 1 unfolds. Listen, many, many, I've said this last week, but many, many times in the Old Testament, God called ethnic Israel His people. And that's all the more that Paul's doing here. And you can tell, if you look at Paul's logic as he works through verse 1, his, his point is clearly, I am an Israelite. I am an ethnic, by race, I am from the nation of the Jews. I'm even of the tribe of Benjamin. Now listen, the Jewish nation had all these benefits. Back in Romans 9, you saw that. In Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, to them, to, to ethnic Israel. I mean, Paul just identifies these people, brothers, kinsmen according to the flesh. And he says, to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race, According to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Listen, Jesus Christ was born of a Jewish mother. The eternal Word came down, became flesh, and was found in human form specifically as an Israelite. According to the flesh, Christ came into the world as one of the Jewish race. But you know what? For all that, at the end of Romans 10, you find that they stumbled over this very same Christ. And so, what Paul is doing as he picks up in Romans 11 is he's realizing that the majority of Israel is perishing. And so he says, has God rejected them? I mean, is that what we're to pick up by this? As we look today and we see the majority of Israel turning their back on their Messiah, Saying, we're going to keep a law. You know, the Orthodox Jew, basically these, these folks, they are trying to live out the Pentateuch. They are trying to live out the Old Covenant law to get right with God. They've rejected Christ. In fact, Matt Haney was telling me that, that in, a, in a number of synagogues, they don't even allow Isaiah 53 to be read anymore because it's so controversial. They've rejected Him. 
And Paul realizes with all this rejection language, disobedience of, of the Jews, he gets to 11 and he says, has God rejected His people? And he, he very quickly, and we dealt with this last time, but he says no. And I'm going to give you two proofs right off. That God as a whole has not rejected ethnic Israel. One, Paul says, because I'm a Jew and I'm saved. Number two, he says, because just like in the days of Elijah, when a remnant were saved, so today. Isn't that what Romans 11.5 says? So today there's, there's a remnant also. They're there. And you know what? That truth of a remnant. We saw it earlier. We saw it back in Romans 9, verse 27, where Paul quoted Isaiah. Listen to what he says. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. But here's the thing. Even though it's a remnant, the remnant proves something. It proves that Israel as a nation has not been totally abandoned. There are indeed Jews coming to faith in Christ from the nation of Israel. No, it's not many. That's true. But the remnant being saved proves this. It proves that God is not yet done with Israel. It proves that He is still at work there. And that brings us to chapter 11, verse 11. Let your eyes fall onto the page of your Scripture there. Now listen. And, and here's the thing, you can see that Paul all along has been talking about Israel as a nation, as a whole. And here are the pronouns. Look at the pronouns in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble? Obviously, he's talking about the nation as a whole. They've stumbled over Christ. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? He says, no, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, I think we probably need to stop right there because some of you might look at that and say that's hard language. I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? You see what Paul's doing here? He's using stumble and he's using fall in two totally different with two totally different definitions. Stumble. Well, he's already told us how they stumbled. How? Over the stumbling stone. And who's the stumbling stone? Christ. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. But he says, did they stumble in that way that they might fall? Now, what fall means here is permanence. Did they fall? Did they stumble over Christ? so that they fell totally away and outside of God's redemptive plan. That's really what he's asking right there. Did their fall when Christ came, did that give evidence that God's just said He's done with them? Is Luther right? And Paul says, by no means, or probably King James says, God forbid. No, that has not happened. And look, folks, if you, if, you think, if you think about individual Jews, this whole thing goes wrong. It definitely goes wrong. 
Because let me, let me point something out to you. Many of the Jews did reject Christ. Did it mean their permanent utter destruction and falling away? As individuals, absolutely it did. Those that were rejecting Christ in that day, what did Christ say? Many shall come from the east and the west. And He said that the sons, the sons of the kingdom were going to be cast out. Cast out where? Into the outer darkness where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. This is hell, folks. They're being cast away. Now, does that, does that stumble over Christ on an individual level mean permanent fall? Yes, it does. And so the very fact Paul says no is an indication he's not speaking about individuals. He's speaking about the nation as a whole. Did some of them, most of them, at one time in history, or at various times in history, or throughout a dispensation, does that mean that God has said, I'm through with you? That's where Paul says no. You know what that, that, that's a little forerunner to what? To the fact that God has future purposes with Israel. That's, that's what we're looking at. Now, he says, by no means. Well, okay, Paul, if God still has some plan for national Israel, then maybe this question should come up. Then why has he hardened most of them? And you say, what's that all about? Well, that's exactly what Paul says is being done in verse 7. Romans eleven seven. The elect obtained it. What did they obtain? Life. Eternal life. They obtained Christ. They obtained the righteousness found in Christ. They obtained favor and acceptance with God. But the rest were hardened. God hardens them. Why would God harden them? If God is not done with them. Now that's the question that we want to look at and we really want to come to grips with before we finish up the sermon this morning. But I want you guys to think about something before we, before we deal with that, before we go too far into that. I want to make certain you see something here before we go any further. The language of Romans 11, it just overflows with certain causal statements. You know, what do I mean by that? Well, just consider verse 11. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So as to make... You see, there is a cause. There is an effect. There is a purpose here. One thing happens so as to make another thing happen. As Paul gets to the end of the chapter and sums up everything that he's trying to say here in verse 32, look, look how he says it. God has consigned. This is Romans 11.32. God has consigned all to disobedience. And what that means is at various times, and to various degrees, and to various numbers, God has consigned God has written into the script that certain Gentiles and certain Jews and certain numbers of them will be given to disobedience. Why? 
Why is God written into that, into that, into, into history? Well, with purpose. That. There's your, there's your word of purpose. That. He may have mercy on all. Again, you see one thing happening specifically in order to bring another thing about. There's purpose here. There's a plan. There's design in the way history is unfolding. God hardens. God consigns to disobedience. God rejects. That's what it says at the beginning of verse 15. There's, there are those that are rejected. God rejects certain men. At times even rejecting most men. But all as a part of a much greater plan. Ultimately, to show mercy on many. Listen. I'm afraid that we have a tendency to think of history oftentimes like Charles Darwin thought about the cell in his day. Do you know, listen, I'm going to draw some parallels here. Do you know that when Darwin came up with his origin of the species and published his theories about evolution, he thought that the human cell was basically a tiny blob of jelly. That's what he thought. I mean, since those days, folks, scientists and molecular biologists have discovered that the cell is not, I, I mean, it's more sophisticated than a computer. The things happening in the human cell are mind-boggling. You go down into the very nucleus. I mean, you've got the cell, but within the cell, you've got a nucleus. What that nucleus is, is basically a, a, a power plant. It's a manufacturing facility. The DNA is in there. The DNA. I mean, you think about this, folks. It has three billion characters of information on one DNA in one cell. It would take you 96 years of your life to read it. If we extended it out, it would be about six foot long. But it's, it's wrapped, spiral wrapped tightly. Now here's the thing. Scientists have observed that within the cell, the cell is constantly manufacturing proteins, manufacturing amino acids. It's, it's absolutely amazing that this, this little contraption floats in to the DNA and un, it's all spiral wrapped. It unwraps it just at a very specific point where the information is that's needed to know how to build that protein. And once this little thing comes in and unwraps it, just only right at that one spot, this other thing floats in and actually rides along the now straightened coil or straight member of the DNA and reads the information. There's information transfer taking place in the cell. And then it floats off and it actually begins to use this information to construct whatever it is, the protein that's needed. Once it's constructed, then it floats off to another place. It actually goes outside of the nucleus. There's a gate there. The thing opens. It knows to open. It floats through. It closes up. It goes out there. And then there's this another little manufacturing deal that comes over. And it's got two halves. And it floats in there. And they come together. And now it shapes it. This is happening inside the cell. 
Why do I say all this? So many view history just like Darwin viewed the cell. Just a blob of stuff. But let me tell you something. What's happening inside the cell is making these guys sit back and, and they're abandoning the theory of evolution. They're abandoning it. They're realizing there had to be somebody smarter than us making this cell. And what it does is it just resounds to the glory of God. But let me tell you something. History is exactly the same way. Man has such... such they, they are so tempted to look at history and basically see it just as a blob of jelly. Just a bunch of random stuff happens. You know, oh, it was old Ray Skrbarsik when he was lost. You know, he would always talk about his snake bit luck. You know, that's just how life is. Just, just a bunch of snake bit luck. You know, it's, it's the way it's going to be. And people, people have this idea that stuff just floats into their life by chance. And it's all, you know, all the happenings in my life? Well, they don't have any real rhyme or reason. They just all kind of packed in there. Listen, you know what happens in this chapter? As Paul is contemplating the spread of history, by the time he gets it to the close of this chapter in verse 33, he just breaks out. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. You know what? He looked at history like a lot of the molecular biologists are looking at the cell today. You just begin to realize there is purpose. There is plan. There is design. It's not just a puddle of mush, folks. History is very distinctly designed by God to bring forth exactly all this intricate outworking as He has planned it. You say, okay, what, is it, what does it look like? Well, Paul's unfolding that for us right here. I mean, chapter 11, is, it's, it's a picture of history. So, back to our question. I asked you, why would God harden Israel if He's not done with Israel? Well, it comes to this plan. It has to do with the meticulous outworkings of God in history. Okay, what does this history look like? Let's think for a second. I want you guys to have a proper understanding of biblical theology. What does the timeline look like? Okay? I mean, Paul gives us all sorts of glimpses into what this thing basically entails. Let's think first about the Old Testament dispensation. What happened back then? How was God working? Let's, what I want you guys to do is follow with me for a second God's redemptive plan. By redemptive plan, I mean historically, who is He saving? Who is He not saving? And then we're going to look at why He was doing it. But okay, Old Testament. Basically, who is He saving? Jewish. Now, how do we know that? Well, I'll tell you this. You can, I, I mean, we see aspects of this like Romans 10, 19. God's saying the Gentiles basically are not a nation. They're a foolish nation. I mean, if they're any kind of nation, they're a foolish nation. Now, obviously, he's referring to how they were in the Old Testament. Because when Christ comes, 
those who sought Him not, those who were a foolish nation, are the very ones that will be coming to Christ. So that's how they basically were in the Old Testament. I mean, a text like Acts 14.16, listen to this. In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. That's how it was. In past generations, prior to that apostolic age, prior to the coming of Christ, God basically let the nations walk in their own ways. Can you guys tell me any Gentiles saved in the Old Testament? Let's number them. Old Testament, Gentiles who were saved. Name one. Rahab the harlot. Okay, name two. You see, folks, we're dealing with an entire age and you guys can't even hardly come up with a second name. Ruth. I mean, hey, we got a whole age and we got two. And I realize you might be able to throw another name or two in there, but the whole point is, in the Old Testament time, as we... As I just quoted to you from Acts, in past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So, we know this. Israel was basically God's chosen people. They were the ones. Romans 11.1 11.2, that's exactly what Paul's calling them. God's people. His people. I mean, they were the ones. Weren't they the ones that had the covenants? They had the patriarchs. The Christ was coming forth from them. They had the oracles of God. They had the worship. They had the temple. They had the priesthood. They had the sac- Obviously, you guys know that. They had all that. God was very specifically working there. But what is it that we find out when we look at Romans 11, 4 and 5? That even though ethnic Israel as a whole was deemed to be God's people, what does Romans 11, 4, and 5 revealed to us about that time. Virtually no Gentiles were being saved, but what do we find? That God, where He was specifically at work, was Israel. But even though He was specifically at work there, what do we find? What does Romans 11, 4, and 5 say? That even in the days of Elijah, and what were the days of Elijah? They're in that Old Testament period we're talking about. And what was true? I mean, what was it that at the end of Romans 9, Paul quoting Isaiah, what did Isaiah say? Even though the children of Israel should be numbered like the sands of the sea, what was true? Only a remnant were being saved, right? In Elijah's day, in Isaiah's day, Only a remnant. So here's the Old Testament period. Virtually all the Gentiles were passed over. God was working very distinctly in Israel, but even there. I mean, when they were in the wilderness, what happened? You know what Hebrews tells us? They perished in unbelief. How many? Most. Who are the ones that came into the promised land that had faith? Very few that were from that old generation. Caleb and Joshua. Now we believe Moses had faith. There may have been others, but even they died in the wilderness. You know what we find in the Old Testament time period? The only God's redemptive plan, only a remnant of Israel. But now Christ comes! And what happens? 
What does he say? He says in, in Matthew 8, many are going to come from the east and from the west. And they are going to come into that kingdom. They are going to sit down with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. The, the patriarchs who belong to Israel. And yet it's those from the nations. And you know what he says? Many. Many. So now we're, Christ comes and He's breaking us forth into a new dispensation. Now, many Gentiles. You know what Christ said? John 12, if you lift me up, He says He's going to draw all men unto Himself. Not every single person, but all of the nations. They'll begin to gather in. They'll begin to flock in to the kingdom. Isaiah said in chapter 49, verse 6, I will make you as a light. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. I will make you as a light for the nations that My salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Again in Isaiah, the Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And Zechariah says of these same days, many, Zechariah 8.22, and he's using the same word that Christ used. Many. Christ said many will come from the east and the west. Zechariah says many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts. So we break into this New Testament period. And yes, most of the Israelites are still stumbling over Christ. Because, as Paul says in Romans 11, verse 5, as in Elijah's day, so also in Paul's day, it was still only a remnant of Israel. So you've got a remnant of Israel in the New Testament time with many Gentiles. In fact, so many Gentiles and so few Jews that Paul in Romans 9 and in Romans 10, speaks almost as though it's the all of the Gentiles that are attaining it. And all of the Jews that are stumbling. Now we know he's, he doesn't mean that, but he speaks in that kind of terminology. Many, oh brethren, if you want to give an incentive to evangelism, an incentive to missions now, it is right here. Many, many, we need to preach Christ. Lift Him up. The salvation of the Lord. He is bearing His arms to the nations. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts. Now, that's what's happening in the New Testament period. But, we ask the question, why? Well, as chapter 11, verse 11 says of Romans, God is bringing all these Gentiles in to do something. You see what it is? Make the Jews jealous. Romans 10.19, look back there. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. That's exactly what he says in 11.11. In Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And in fact, this is exactly what Paul's trying to do. Look down at verse 13. I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Look right there at the end of verse 13. 
about midway through. I'm, a, I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And I, I commend this to you. If you have Jewish friends, you have a calling just like Paul did. Make them jealous, folks. You don't have to sit there and quote your New Testament to them. Make them jealous with their own Old Testament Scriptures. You run back there to Isaiah 9. Run back there to Isaiah 53 and just glory. I'll tell you what Matt said. They, they don't let Isaiah 53 be read in many of their synagogues. Why? Because it's so controversial. Because it so plainly speaks to Christ. Use their own Old Testament. Make, I mean, just glory in it. Man, you know, your old, your old Testament Scriptures are great and your history is great and your Messiah is great and I've got Him. Unto us the Son has been born. I mean, glory in it. Make them jealous. But here's the thing. Is it just to make them jealous so that they can be jealous and angry and go off to hell? No. That's not what it is. Notice Romans 11, verse 12. Now, if their trespass, Israel as a nation, their trespass, which is their rejection of Christ, if that means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, and it does, their rejection of Christ ushered in great riches to the Gentiles. But if it meant that, if it produces that, how much more will their fullness or their full inclusion mean? How much more? Well, let's, let's continue with this. Notice verse 15. If their rejection, Israel's rejection of Christ, means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. Now I want you to see, Paul is clearly saying this. What we see with our own eyes today. Israel, by and large, has rejected. You see that word? By their rejection. If their rejection means reconciliation, what will their acceptance be? I mean, what is Paul... Paul is basically taking us to fasten our eyes on the fact that there is acceptance. Now, right now, Paul realizes he's seeking to make them jealous so that he might save some. So part of their acceptance is right now some coming in. That was in Paul's day. It's always hard to tell right where we are. It looks like we're still basically where Paul was. And when they come, it's like life from the dead. But now, go forward. Look at verse 25. Romans 11.25 Lest you be wise in your own conceits. He's speaking to the Gentiles there. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come. Now we, we see back in the beginning verses of Romans 11. God hardened them. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. The elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. What he's saying is that hardening has come upon Israel until. You see, there's a time that until, that preposition, it's very distinct that things are a certain way now, 
and they will continue that way until. That tells us somewhere in the timeline, until we're going to reach a point that something is going to happen. And what is it that's going to happen? Well, let, let me ask you this. Where is the point on the timeline? The New Testament period? We've got a remnant of Israel. We've got many Gentiles. And then boom, we hit a place where the fullness of the Gentiles. Fullness means the great body of the Gentile elect will have been brought in. That fullness of Gentile believers will have been gathered until that time. And then what we find is all Israel will be saved. That's what it says there. All Israel will be saved. You know what? Full inclusion. The fullness. Life from the dead. God is life from the dead. God is one day going to pump life back into Israel. Verse 26, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, you know what? All Israel doesn't mean every single specific person. Because obviously, many are dying now and perishing. It doesn't mean all Israel of all time. In fact, I think it's, much, it's used in much the same way Christ means it when He says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw all people unto Me. That doesn't mean every single one. But it, there's a fullness. That word full inclusion in our, in our ESVs is fullness. That's the idea of it. Just as there's a fullness of Gentiles, so there will be brought in a fullness of Israel. Full inclusion. Fullness. You see this back in verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. This idea that they rejected for a season, but there is coming a day when a fullness is going to come. Their full inclusion. Now look. Paul summarizes everything in verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God. Speaking to the Gentiles. You Gentiles were at one time disobedient. But now you've received mercy because of Israel's disobedience. So, Israel too, they've, had, they've been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, the Jews also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all the disobedience that He may have mercy on all nations. And you know what, folks? I just ask you this. Why? I mean, we're going to finish with this. Why? Why should it be this way? Why would God do such a thing? Why in the world would He harden Jews Harden His people. They're falling off into perdition by the multitudes. In order... I mean, why would He consign them to disobedience? You know what it says? So that He might show mercy to the Gentiles. Okay, and in showing Gentiles mercy, the Jews are made jealous. And in that, eventually one day, you have this mass in gathering. Some now, a fullness to come. And in this way, all Israel being gathered in. Why? 
let me, let me just throw some thoughts at you. You know one thing? As, as Paul started this chapter, he wanted to emphasize, it's all by grace. It's a remnant according to grace. And you know what happened? I mean, now let's retrace this thing real fast from God's perspective. Okay, he starts out in the beginning. The Mosaic Covenant is being given. We're going back to the beginnings of the Old Testament period when the Mosaic Law is being handed down. And you got Sinai and smoke and thunder and Ten Commandments and all that. And God chooses Israel out from among all the other nations. I mean, He turned Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And He basically be, he has this purpose to form a nation from Him. And you see this, this whole thing coming into fruition. And Moses comes and, and all these laws are laid down for the people. And you know what God says to them? He starts out right in the beginning and He says, look, I've chosen you. I've set My love on you. But I want you to know something. I've done this not because you were the greatest. Not because you were the most numerous. You were the least of all people. And you know what He says? You know what He's basically saying there? Don't ever get puffed up. Don't ever get full of pride. Don't ever get to the place where you think that you have done this. But you need to remember where you came from. And you need to remember that I chose you not because of anything in you. And you know what happens when you get to the time of Christ's coming? Do you know what happens? What are the Jews doing? Our father is Abraham. We didn't ever have any other father. And that's why John the Baptist comes on the scene and he says, don't you dare say that you're children of Abraham. He says, God can from these stones, from these rocks, raise up children to Abraham. Don't you dare boast in that. And you find right there in the first chapter of John that it's not, folks, it's not because of bloodlines. It's not because of the will of the flesh. It's not because of the will of man. Folks, God chooses by grace. It's according to God's mercy. And it's been that way. And I'll tell you what, God comes along to teach you Gentiles that it is by grace. You know how? By basically taking Israel as a whole and putting them on the sideline and hardening them to show you that it is not by Jewishness. It is not by family lines. It is not because of any physical connection. It's not because of anything that man has to offer. And he totally sidelines to show the whole world and to show the nations. Those who were in disobedience, a nation that wasn't even a nation, a foolish nation, and God brings them in. And I'll tell you this, in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, God even breaks it down further. He says, even among those of the Gentiles that He saves, there are not many mighty. There are not many popular. There are not many rich. There are not many that in this world's estimation are mighty people and famous people, and beautiful people. Why? So that there may be no boasting in the presence of the Lord. It's been that way. And just when everybody says, oh, He's done with Israel. He's going to save a fullness. Why? To show He can. And to show that His Word has not failed. But folks, 
He allows people to go off into rebellion. And I'll tell you this, for the sake of the elect and to teach you the truth about Him and His saving grace and how He saves through Christ, many go off into hell. Many are vessels of wrath for the sake of the vessels of mercy to teach them the truth of God. It is all by grace. It is absolutely by grace. And God shows us, and we're going to look at this more later, but God can break off the proud Jews when He wants and harden them. And He can break off you Gentiles if there should be pride and lifting up. I'm not in any way trying to shake anybody's assurance in the salvation of God. Just breaking off, and we'll see what that is maybe in two weeks. But I want you guys to understand that God has designated and written into the script and hardened and consigned to disobedience many in order to show that His salvation is by grace and by grace alone. By faith in Jesus Christ and the blood He shed. And He has cast off nations to prove that. And He will sweep them into the kingdom to prove it. In certain dispensations, He will consign many to disobedience to prove it. And just when you've got guys coming along and boasting that they're children of Abraham, He consigns them to the pit. He says, I'll show you the grace. And He goes out to the Gentiles and sweeps them in by the many and by the multitudes. And we're a product of that. I mean, as you watch history written out, we can just break out into praise the same way Paul does at the end. I mean, it is all to Him and through Him and unto Him and for Him. It's for His glory. It's, I mean, it, this, this is such a picture of His grace. It's just amazing that that grace has swept many of us into that kingdom. Oh, beloved, that no one may boast. All of redemptive history is designed from beginning to end to put a stop to human boasting. Free and sovereign grace stops boasting and it leads to humble, brokenhearted gratitude and worship. Oh, beloved, from Him and through Him to Him are all things forever and ever. To, him, to God be the glory of the great things He hath done. Amen. You are dismissed.